0: Hey Natalie, what do you see?
1: Well Jesse, today I see the brilliant sparkling vast blue ocean which is very exciting because it's been a long time coming. (laughs) Um, But I see islands on the horizon, I see a a few feet of beach stretched out in front of us because it's starting to come into higher tide. Uh, very empty beach, which is super nice. And I also see a a seagull that is in the awkward teenage stage of, of growing up, uh, still a juvenile, which means he's begging incessantly for food, as you can hear in the background. It sounds like a squeaky toy. Yeah, um, it's
0: finally calmed down a little bit. A little bit. But... You'll hear him if he starts back up. Oh yeah. It's very, very annoying.
1: <laughs> um, but as for actual geographic location, we are near Airlie Beach um, in a little place called Dingo Beach near Hideaway Cove.
0: So I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Natalie
0: and we are as she said on the beach and it is nice And it's it is so hot. nice
1: ah that's a big change i know literally last episode i was talking about how cold the desert was yep and then we I, it's actually been quite a a while since the recording of our last episode
0: yeah it's actually kind of a mistake on our part because we wanted to make it kind of a continuation so <laughs> if we're sitting here and just talking extra fast it's because we had to go back and listen to the last episode on times two speed um so right now I don't know the sound of my voice when it's not talking like a caffeinated gerbil um (laughs) so it is it is going to be interesting but I think we got went back and we got all the things that we said we would talk about and hit again so
1: so hopefully we haven't betrayed you guys by just leaving you on a cliffhanger on something juicy but uh as I was saying, it's it's been a while since we last recorded, which means we've actually covered quite a bit of ground.
0: Yeah, I lied about the long drive. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been driving much.
1: pretty long, um, and we've gotten a lot further north. Which acts so in Australia because it's in the southern hemisphere. Going north means you get warmer. So we're yes. actually in like summer temperatures now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you can't notice, our audio might sound a little better, a little clearer. We're probably a little louder. Because um, we have our double mic set up now. Finally, we managed yeah. to
1: buy the last piece of equipment that we needed just to be able to do this on our phones. Because again, we are only using our phones on this. We do not have a computer with us.
0: Yeah, it's sometimes a bit of a nightmare. Um, but yeah, we it's got to set up a little smoother. We're actually recording another congratulations to ourselves. our 10th episode.
1: Woo woo, double woo. digits.
0: So yeah. Um,
1: Proud of us. We've really fun. persevered. Yeah. But I do I do like the two-week um, schedule that we've yeah. kind of adopted because that's allowed us to kind of relax about it and still retain the fun mm-hmm. and the newness of, of what this feels like. It's nice to sit down and record now.
0: Yeah, and this, we just kind of got lucky, which you guys may disagree. Who knows? You may be able to hear the wind and the seagulls, but we... Uh we found this beach, Dingo Beach is so nice because there's like nobody out here. Yeah, no. And th- the thing is, it's built to have people out here. There's parking, there's places to eat, there's bathrooms, but I guess it's because it's just like a Friday morning, well now evening, but it just, there's nobody out here. It's, yeah. it's super nice. We don't have to worry about bothering anybody. Yeah,
1: it's it's honestly, this is the emptiest beach I have seen in all of Australia, Yeah. which is surprising considering how like good it is and surprising considering the fact that I can see a blue blob, a dark blue blob, <laughs> like what quarter mile out from shore? Probably
0: not even. You can
1: walk to it. Yeah. And that's coral. And we know because we went to it and we looked underwater and it's coral.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's been fun because so we finally bought some snorkeling gear um because we're getting up into that area and that maybe a bit preemptively because I still haven't decided if it was a good buy simply because I, so normally when I've been snorkeling, so Natalie's yet to be on a real snorkeling yep. adventure. I'm a baby. Um, but when I've gone snorkeling before, you usually pay for some sort of tour or it's like people show you where to snorkel. Here it's been like, we know that the snorkeling exists, but most of it you have to get on a boat and we don't have that luxury. So we've just kind of been looking at nice beaches, trying to find a spot. Um, and it turns out if the visibility is not super great, and you don't feel like you have the right gear because for here you need stinger suits which is basically jellyfish protection Yep. um and like some of them which, are for, issues
1: for the uninitiated that's a wetsuit. that's the the dark like i think they're different. they're different so i
0: think the wetsuit is the one to keep you like warmer in okay. the cold water and keep your body temperature in i
1: don't think they were both
0: they? I think they can be the same. I okay. think, like, a, I'm pretty sure a wetsuit serves the same function as a stinger okay. suit. But if you just get a stinger suit, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure it's just a single layer, like, it doesn't trap the water okay. like a wetsuit does. Um, so I think it's just protection, okay. Um, so yeah, like, the re- yeah. The,
1: and the reason why I was, um, I was under the impression that they were the same is because I believe they're both made of neoprene, mm, and the yeah. reason why stinger suits work is because the thickness of the neoprene. Is thicker than the longest, uh, like stingers oh, uh, that the jellyfish have. Because I think the longest, their their longest stingers are like an uh, an eighth of an inch, hmm. and I think the neoprene is like a quarter of an inch.
0: Interesting. Yeah, and they they might be the same, but I I think one is way more expensive to get your hands on this than the very other. This is true. Um,
1: Wetsuits are are very expensive. I know that for sure.
0: Yeah. So we. Have just. I, it's funny though, because because she hasn't done much snorkeling, and because I'm not used to finding my own snorkeling, it is very intimidating, on so many levels. Oh yeah,
1: oh yeah. I'm so scared. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, have, I have like anxiety going out there just because my feet are touching the sand and I can't fully see <laughs> where I'm stepping. Like mm-hmm. I can, but I can't. And even if you have visibility to the floor, like a decent amount of visibility your brain still plays tricks on you and mm-hmm. is it, it interprets shadows where there aren't shadows and i haven't been in a normal situation where you know most people who have snorkeled will tell you like you can just swim with stuff and it's not going to bother you if yeah. you don't bother it i haven't had that experience so yeah. i am not confident at all
0: <laughs> yeah and so like i'm more confident to walk out there but cuz i'm not too worried about the stuff i can kind of see but once you get under the water and like you can see some, but you can't really see that far. And we've already seen like massive stingrays. We've seen, we saw a sea turtle the other day. We've seen a puffer fish just walking. Like that's not even with a snorkel on. Um, And like my plan after we record this to actually go back out there and try to at least snorkel along the edge of that coral reef, but it's intimidating. Like As someone who has not had to find my own snorkeling areas, it's like, am I supposed to be here? Is this right?
1: Will something get me? Yeah. That's my biggest question.
0: The other... So, like, I'm not too afraid of the things that are on the reef. I mean, of course, everybody has the the shark adrenaline fear. But, like, those aren't really that big of a threat. The thing that we have been told, though, multiple times that continues to make me nervous is people are like, yeah, don't swim on just any beach because saltwater crocodiles are a thing. Oh, yeah. And those actually are dangerous. So wildly it's, dangerous yeah it's one of those things that like even when i'm swimming around i'm like okay the locals said this beach is fine but your brain is like
1: is it is it is could it they
0: fine? come out here so all of that has us way more nervous than we should be um and we're going to try to make it by i think magnetic island we'll hopefully find some decent yeah. snorkeling but
1: yeah i think my my confidence will go up once i've actually been in a place where they're like no, no no you're fine Hundreds of people snorkel this a day and it is totally safe. But right now it's just kind of like, nobody's on this beach, nobody's swimming, and it makes me scared.
0: Yeah, it's a a very, just getting nervous. Yeah. Um, And then I think one thing that we're still trying to figure out, we may have waited a little too long, so we've got some pieces in play, but we're trying to figure out how to get our scuba diving certification. Um, We don't know if we're going to be able to do that this month, or if we're going to have to just stick around and do it in July. Um, We'll see, yeah. Not sure yet, but that's Who that's knows? On the Maybe list. by the
1: time you listen to this episode, we'll already have the certification.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very possible. So that's kind of what's going on here. Um, there was a slightly new idea we had of doing like a... It's not organized yet. Maybe we'll have like theme music for it eventually, but our yeah. unexpected segment. Like yeah. what's happened that's been unexpected.
1: Exactly, because like we need to put our money where our mouth is and talk about the stuff that happens that is not necessarily like all sunshine and rainbows because there are a lot of unexpected things that happen that are very inconvenient and i know we've talked about osmo a lot but there's other stuff that happens in yeah. travel um so we're gonna put our money where our math is and have talk about the unexpected thing that has happened to us since we last recorded
0: yeah and at this point this probably would have been like three weeks or so ago something
1: yeah
0: something like that um it would have happened right after the last recording yep. um that we that we posted so we had just pulled up outside of melbourne which we had been trying to get to melbourne for so long at that point it had, so long like weeks months like we had talked about going to melbourne just to try the food and it had taken we'd driven all along the great ocean road everything and then we stop outside this rest stop and you wanted to do something.
1: Yeah, I uh, I had a hankering mm-hmm. to pull out the Switch and uh, play Super Mario Galaxy, which we had picked up like...
0: Not Galaxy. What is it called? I forgot the name, too. It's not Galaxy. It's, it's not a, Galaxy. What is it? It's the one with the hat.
1: The hat. Odyssey. Odyssey. There it is. There are okay. similar <laughs>
0: words. That's hilarious. Um, so, yeah, she wanted to play Odyssey. And so... We went to pull out the switch, and I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and couldn't find the switch.
1: And me, being the anxious one of the two of us, um, I started panicking a little bit. So I was like, hey, just pull out your phone, because we have Air Tags that are tucked into some of our most important pieces of luggage and we had already transferred one of our AirTags to the Switch case. So I was like, hey, just pull out your phone and make sure that it's still in the same location as us so that I can stop mentally freaking out.
0: Yeah, and that didn't work because as soon as I checked, it was a good six or seven hours away on the AirTag. And I was like, you've got to be kidding. So
1: now I started freaking out more.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so she kind of hit like a moment of really freaking out. I was sitting there just trying to figure out is it worth driving seven hours for a switch? Which is expensive, but like you gotta think about the gas. And I was like, to go get a switch that we don't know who has it, we don't know if they've taken the air tag out, we don't know anything at all. And like that was the big question, is like, is it worth driving? And I think we wanna give this story more time than just this little snippet in this episode. So I'm not gonna tell you all the details, but we did decide to go and try and get it.
1: And we're not gonna leave you hanging. The Switch is back in our possession. We did get it. There's a whole big adventure story that kind of goes with that. Um, That was a very cool experience for the both of us. And it, again, kind of turned into one of those things where something bad unexpected happened that led to something good unexpected.
0: But it ended up being just one of those experiences that, (laughs) as crazy as it was, We actually ended up getting to see other things um, that we wanted to see, and I think it'll be fun to give it its time, like I said, in another episode. Um, But, I don't know, just a fun fun time that was very stressful and should not have been fun and could have went way worse. Um, (laughs) But we ended up, like she said, getting it back, and it was was quite the story. But anyway, for what you guys came for in the first place, we want to finish talking about Uluru and everything that we had – covered previously and wanted to finish talking about i think this episode uh good news should be mostly just like fun facts and stuff um we will finish up on a bit of a more serious note just because i think there's some really interesting like cultural things that we wanted to talk about but there's so many fun little stories that we just got into about the aboriginal people and about the the practices that, that they have um and so, it's just really fascinating
1: we. to hear like how people interact with the land around them mm-hmm. at least personally i'm very invested in that mm-hmm. subject so that's that'll be pretty much a lot of, of what we talk about this yeah. episode
0: and like one of the things that i think brings so many of these interesting stories out and i'm sure all forms of their culture across australia because they differ greatly have these different practices and stories but the the desert group that we were specifically dealing with in that area have so many interesting stories because survival is so hard day to day. Yeah. So it's like, in order to survive, they found every little thing they could eat, every way they could eat it, and if they could preserve it, how to preserve it.
1: Yeah, which leads to another interesting thought that a lot of Westerners, hopefully, maybe I'm just the only one, (laughs) but um, I would think it would be something that maybe we don't think about immediately, which is that they had no way of saving the majority of the food that they got like there there were some natural preservation things which i think we're gonna hit but for meat, especially there was no refrigerator yeah and that means things got interesting when they hunted
0: yeah that's why day to day and for me who has like hunted a little bit in america it's one of those things that like i found it very interesting um because like they couldn't store the meat so my family hunts all the time but we will store the meat to the point where you can eat it all throughout the year you know and you could probably survive just on what my dad uh, harvests from the woods each year but for them the meat specifically was a one-day use so it was very important for that culture that one they regularly were able to harvest the meat so that people could survive and two that once it was harvested, it needed to be completely eaten within 24 to 48 hours Mm -hmm. or the meat would go bad. Yeah. Um, And so the one that I thought was so interesting, well, first of all, they didn't really have knives. They took some sort of, was it flint or quartz?
1: You think quartz, sharpened yeah. quartz, which came from a very specific area by the way. It's not just like you can find this quartz lying on the ground. That is a piece of information that they've passed down mm-hmm. father to son. The location of where to find this quartz that can be sharpened specifically to do what?
0: They would use it to to gut the kangaroo. They would use it to cut it open and get it ready to travel with. Um, which, again, like, that's a pretty sharp object. Yeah. And they didn't really use it so much. It wasn't so much, I didn't hear them talk about for the hunting, right? No, no, yeah. no,
1: no, no. It was the preparation of, of the meat.
0: Yeah, so it's not like with Native Americans, for example, when you think about arrowheads using flint for, like, spears and arrows and things. But that's not really what it was here for. They more used, was it like... think they had a couple different weapons one of which was a uh, boomerang yes Um, Uh,
1: they also used spears they did use spears there
0: was a spear yeah so Um, that was probably also used
1: yes and then they also have a really cool weapon which I'm just want to give a little shout out to this weapon Um, in the middle of talking about their whole meat preparation thing they have something called a kitty k-i-t-i which is a stick that they put this um residue from the spinifex grass on which i had mentioned briefly in the first episode the spinifex grass gives off a very sticky substance and they essentially would collect this substance and melt it and then put it on the end of a stick and it would create this like tar like club that when it cooled down it was a solid Mm -hmm. which meant that it could be used largely for two different purposes. One, to whack things. It was a
0: bonking stick. That's what it was. It
1: was was a club, essentially. They
0: beat lizards over the head with it all day long. Yeah,
1: and um, the other purpose was reheating it over the fire, taking some of that tar that would melt off of it, and using it to fix their weapons.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It was... um like one of our tour guides who wasn't aboriginal talked about how crazy it was that it was so efficient at fixing not just the weapons but the tools they would use like uh they had like digging sticks things like that that like they could put this tar on it and it would extend the life like a crazy amount Yeah,
1: which to me is fascinating because that's essentially like i don't even know that that's tar before tar was a thing yeah because they've been doing that for a very long time yeah but anyways so let's let's talk about the kangaroo a little bit more
0: so I'll probably ramble a little bit here about exactly the way the hunting went just go all the way back to when they're like stalking the kangaroo or the emu or whatever they're hunting they would basically set up an ambush and as these things were coming into a watering hole and it was super important to them that the animals didn't get scared because if they got scared they would end up they would end up not coming back to the water hole. So it was super important that they never actually saw the hunter in the first place. Mm-hmm. So when they would hunt there, they'd ambush, they'd wait, they'd wait, but as the first kangaroo came in or the first emu or whatever it is, they wouldn't attack it. They would let that one go. They'd let the next one go, they'd let the next one go. they wait till the very last one in the pack. They would take that one out, And as soon as they killed it, they'd drag it out so that the other emu and deer would never eat. Deer. I'm used to deer from America. (laughs) The other emu and kangaroo would not even know it happened. So they would continue to come back to the watering hole. So that was the first step. But as soon as that happened, they would then gut the kangaroo. And I'm trying to remember exactly how they did it. But they did some sort of like, the way they would cut it, I think it would fold up on itself if I remember correctly. Yeah, to
1: make it more transportable yeah
0: they would actually put it on top of their head I'm pretty sure and yeah. walk it but then they would not only do that they would take these twigs or branches or maybe it was even some sort of grass um, and they would insert it all into the carcass but you're like what why like why the heck is that the reason it's because of the flies the flies in Australia are horrible so all these little branches would be like swinging back and forth it'd be knocking the flies completely off and they would walk it for however many miles, or I'm sorry, I'll start kilometers, um, <laughs> that they might need to walk it. But as soon as it got there, the hunter would get there, the hunter would go to sleep to get ready for the next day. That's when the, ki- the women and children would come out. They would prepare the meat. It would all be eaten by the next morning because they couldn't save any of it. And at that point, the kangaroo's gone. The hunter wakes up the next morning. I'm sure he would figure out some way to eat some as well. I think he actually, they talked about, a lot of times they would cook it up on spot.
1: Yeah. I think yeah. they would cook they, their they would portion. They catch it and then mm-hmm. eat, like cut off a portion of yeah. it, cook it, eat it, and then transport the rest back. Yeah,
0: exactly. So it was like, it was all so, it was, it was so efficient. And it was all meant for just a single day. And that's what blows my mind is that like their culture was built around, survival from day to day um, which is really hard to imagine and I know there was several other um, things that we wanted to talk about with like ways that they preserve food and stuff like that.
1: And now that I'm remembering it actually I want to make sure we get the the facts as accurate as possible looking back on this even though it's been a while. I think they actually cooked the entire kangaroo on the spot once they once they uh, hunted because they needed to get it fully prepared and the way that they would do that is they they would do like a burning off of the hair and that was a whole duty thing and then there was there was i think they had to bury it to cook it
0: i think they did Yeah. and
1: there was a there was a whole process behind that so they would still do all of the other techniques that we talked about, but they would do that to the cooked carcass instead of the raw yeah. carcass.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say that like cooked meat will last quite a bit longer than it, like just raw yes. meat. Yeah. Yes,
1: it should, but that still doesn't get rid of the fly problem, no. which the branches were, were for. Yeah. Um, but anyways, they had a couple of other things that were really interesting uh, that they used for food. So one of the things that I found really fascinating uh, was the fact that fruit does different things in the middle of the desert than it does in settings that I'm more familiar with. Um, My idea of fruit, especially if you're foraging for fruit, is if there's fruit on the ground, it's probably bad because it's had time to land on the ground and then rot because Those areas have a lot of moisture in the air and a lot of things that'll eat it. The fruit in the desert, if they find fruit on the ground, it's essentially what we would call freeze-dried. Not because it's cold, but because it's so hot that it will just suck all of the moisture out of that fruit before it even has a chance to rot. So they would just gather fruit that's on the ground and use it like grind it up and put it in things and that's what they would use for flavoring and i thought that was fascinating
0: yeah they ended up with about like three different forms i think of the fruit basically you get it fresh just like we would mm-hmm. and then you would have it freeze-dried so you'd have candy and then they would grind it up and turn it into a powder for like flavoring yeah on different things like, yeah for like cakes oh, and things
1: i remember i remember they did something with the ones that were like in the in-between uh in the in-between stage between fresh and completely freeze-dried they would make a fruit paste. They would put like a bunch of water on a on a, a slab, make it wet, put on these fruit, grind it up, and continue grinding it so that they got like this pulpy um, almost like a smoothie but like on the the, <laughs> the place where they ground it and then the men would come in from hunting uh and they would shovel up this fruit stuff for a a quick fix of like raise their blood sugar they've been hunting all day kind of a thing and they would eat that and then they would head back out to do more hunting until the sun went down
0: yes basically they're like Gatorade yeah yeah (laughs) it was great yeah and then like talking about the taste and stuff and everything that they put in their dishes my maybe my favorite thing and we've mentioned it so many times is the hunting ant Oh, yeah. You see the honey ant in their artwork. You see the... We saw pictures of it. We were like, what is this thing? And then somebody finally described it to us. And it is basically... It's basically—it's—it's hard to even describe. It's basically like you take an insect and then you milk it. <laughs> and then you just put it back. And the thing is, like, most people, I think, if they were to try to eat a honey ant, would end up killing it. Yes. Because essentially it, it does some sort of process where it holds the like really sweet sugary like honey it and concentrates
1: it in its abdomen yeah in yeah. its
0: abdomen and it's one of those things that like you can eat that it's re- apparently so sweet you only need a few of them to like flavor a cake it's supposed to be like sweeter than most candy um it was described to us by like people that weren't aboriginal people that were aboriginal it was crazy this thing is sounds amazing and I won't want one. Yes. I never wanted to eat a bug more than I wanted <laughs> to eat this bug.
1: And the secret of the honey ants location is part of the like Aboriginal knowledge that they pass down. It's like yeah. how do you find the honey ants? That's like knowledge that they hold. Yeah. Um, which is very cool. I, I think it's like that's that's a great foraging technique.
0: Yeah and so like for the Aboriginal people specifically they have a method where they will they will actually take the honey out without killing the ant. And then return the ant so that they can find it again later. And it's just like, that is so interesting.
1: Yeah. And I don't blame them for not sharing that knowledge widely because if you're trying to make sure the ants don't die because they're one of your, like, central ways of enjoying food, um, it would be a mistake to tell Mm -hmm. a bunch of people where the ants are and not, like, be able to interact with them personally to show them okay this is how you harvest it to make sure that the ant doesn't die this is why it's important that the ant doesn't die etc because it does require finesse it requires a technique that you have to learn
0: yeah and then another story that just absolutely blew my mind and the thing is we would heard it several times before we even got to Uluru is that when it rains on Uluru fish is what we were told initially show up on the mountain like in little puddles and stuff which sounds
1: very unlikely yeah
0: because we had met multiple people that had in an unlikely event been at uluru when it was wet Mm -hmm. and had both mentioned how they could see these fish this was
1: before the climb closed when they were able to climb up to the top um on their own and and see the pools
0: yeah exactly and so they had seen these so-called fish and then we were somebody finally told us what it actually was and then uluru built like when we were there they build on top of what we had found out is that these are actually shrimp that will dehydrate whenever the water goes away and apparently can last didn't they say it was like 50 years or more
1: something like that before they get rehydrated yeah Yeah.
0: that that number could be way off but like they could last a very long time without any water because of all the droughts that happen sometimes Mm -hmm. and then once the water hits They wake back up, I'm pretty sure they reproduce, lay some more shrimp, and they're ready to go.
1: For the next generation. Basically sounds
0: like sea monkeys.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was about to say, it (laughs) sounds incredibly unlikely, and then you're like, oh wait, that's what sea monkeys do. (laughs) They might be the exact same thing, actually. I don't know.
0: Maybe. Because we haven't seen them ourselves. Yeah, I know. I don't even know. No
1: idea. I could probably Google that, but uh, that's a task for future Natalie.
0: Yeah. And I think you wanted to talk about the the stars, right? And some yes. of the interesting stories that yes. have come about in, from that.
1: So this is a little bit of a left turn. Uh-huh. We're not talking about food anymore or shrimp. We're gonna talk a, a little about some of the ways that they record history, actually. Um, and that has to do with the stars. <laughs> because one of the things that we actually got the chance to do was uh, support the indigenous peoples here by buying some of their artwork and I was particularly drawn to this motif that I saw over and over and over again in these paintings and it was a repetition of seven figures whether they were represented by dots or women that appeared and it was the story of the seven sisters. And that story is a story that they actually mapped out from the stars, but they used it as a way to explain something wise or something that is like a good practice to follow to their kids. And the story of the Seven Sisters is pretty simple, but um, it is basically there was an older guy who was trying to marry one of the younger sisters. And the moral of the story was stay with your kind, stay with your family because it's dangerous if you go alone. Um, And the the way that that's shown in a lot of the pictures is they have these seven figures all together uh, or all centrally located around one sister and one figure either hidden in the background somewhere usually like represented by some kind of pattern in the back because he's very tricky he's trying to trick the sisters into letting him grab this this youngest sister um and so so the whole moral of the story is like stick with your family and protect Mm -hmm. your family essentially
0: yeah and like keep in mind that one thing we were told is a lot of these stories that they're willing to share in their art forms and stuff is the same stories that are Shared with the public because they're considered almost children's stories. Yes. Like I said, it's... So they're very simple. Yeah, they're simple stories that is okay for them to share with us because it's not important to their... Like it's sacred to their culture. Yes. Um,
1: well, it's, it's probably still considered sacred, but it's like little bit of baby, baby sacred.
0: Yeah. It's not sacred in, in the same like importance and value in the way that it's It's taken. And um, I think you mentioned this, but like that story comes from the stars. Yes. Um, and the, the crazy thing about this, which in my brain brings up so many questions, um, <laughs> but it there, these stars that they are referencing, if you look in the sky right now, I think there are, what, only six that you can see, correct? Or is it five now? Um, I can't remember. I, I
1: don't fully remember, but yeah. it, it is not the full seven.
0: Yeah, it's not the full seven. But
1: we know that the seven were visible at some point in human history. There's yes. a very specific caveat to that
0: but and not only that like the this aboriginal culture is not the only culture throughout the world that has a story based on these seven stars specifically the seven stars but now that the like multiple stars have aligned themselves so you can't see all seven they kind
1: of like tucked behind each other
0: yeah we know just from studying the stars that i believe it was 50,000 years ago it would have been visible, yes. which means that the stories that not just this culture but other cultures have means that somebody in their culture saw the seventh star 50,000 years ago.
1: Which just blows my mind because yeah. that means that these cultures have been around. That's one of the reasons why we said in the, in the first episode that like there, there is some kind of incidental proof yeah. that these cultures have been around for a very long time.
0: And there's just so many arguments and things that are had within different communities that are like, how old is the earth, you know? And, like, some people want to argue younger or older or even just human culture. Like, that's another thing outside of, like, uh, you know, how old is the earth alone. But there's so many arguments about age. And then you come across this and it's just like, well, it's at least 50,000 years it's old. It's
1: got to be. <laughs> because How else would they have known that there's a seventh star? <laughs> yeah, which it, is That's crazy. one of those things that's like, the only reason why we know about that is because of modern day technology. Mm-hmm. And they, they didn't have access to that. How could they have perfectly guessed that there were seven stars in the sky at one point? Yeah. So the only logical conclusion is they were there to see it.
0: Oh, wait. I do have another logical conclusion, though. Yes. Aliens.
1: Aliens. Yeah. How could we forget? I
0: probably should have realized how it's stupid always I aliens. It. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, guys. That was really ignorant of me. I should have <laughs> acknowledged the aliens. Um. But, yeah, that that story alone just absolutely blows my mind um, that that's the case. Yep. And then there's... Do you want to start this one? There's the really... <laughs> interesting reason as to why some people refer to Uluru as the largest tombstone
1: oh to yes exist. All right. so Uluru is I mean there are several theories as to why this is but um, Uluru is seen as very like mystical and interesting and exotic by a lot of people worldwide internationally um, and maybe as a result uh, a lot of people's ashes are spread there every day
0: it's a such a weird phenomenon it's
1: it is and it's really hard to enforce because like by the time somebody's done it like the uh the anangu people specifically are like it's already done their spirits already here like this is their final resting place regardless of what we wanted like it doesn't matter if you vacuum up the dust like actually if you vacuum up the dust it's kind of cruel because that means that they'll just be in a vacuum bag <laughs> they they take remains very seriously
0: which is in some ways really respectful by them that even though they feel like because i don't i think even for them i don't think they really bury people near uluru because of its sacred. at yes. least that's kind of I, a vibe i got i don't I know I don't if that's true so, yeah but because of that i think they don't want other people putting their own remains here especially if you're not from the area yeah and it so it's one of the it is interesting to me that their response is don't let people do it, but hey, once they've done it, we're not touching those remains because yep. they they put a certain sort of respect on other yep. people's dreams and desires and mm-hmm. the fact that they're put there and the value on someone else's life.
1: Yeah, um, and and it's really interesting because I hear something like that uh, as a third party, and I'm like, is that really true? Like, do they really dump the ashes? And then we went on a walking tour with one of the guys, and he pointed out spots where it was very obvious that somebody had dumped those ashes like within the past week yeah. kind of a thing. Like those ashes looked fresh. Yeah. And they were definitely not like fire ashes because they were like fully white and they had like little crunchy bits which is really disturbing. <laughs> he keeps... He kept
0: referring to the crunchy bits. <laughs> I love that that's the term they use. And the country crunchy bits. Little
1: crunchy bits. Uh, so it was... They were definitely like oh no, these are weird ashes. That has to be human ashes. Yeah. So people are still actively doing it. It's just that they can't really they can't really enforce it cause they can't stop people. And once, once the thing happens, they can't really undo it.
0: And the, the funny thing to me is at their their theory, as an Aboriginal person, he had a theory as to why people are doing it. And this actually kind of leads into the more serious topics as well. Uh, so this is a good, good transition, but um, they their theory is there was a time when Uluru was opened much more to the public. There were no rules on where you could go. There were no rules on the pictures you could take. Um, and to be fair, I don't necessarily believe this theory, but it's super interesting and kind of funny at the same time. Um, they believe that some of these tourists who had no connection with Uluru or the culture or anything would come into these areas men, women, children, everybody. And they would, this would probably have been, I think he said, like, you know, 50s to 70s when mm-hmm. this was going on. They would come in and they would go into the areas. That were not meant for them. So we, I think, briefly mentioned there's like men's business, men's business and women's business, and they would go into these areas, whether they were men or women or what they were. And so they would come in, and their theory is, as the Aboriginal people that take these these beliefs and these uh, these thoughts very seriously, their thought is that those people had some sort of experience that wasn't meant for them. Basically, the the sacred places made themselves known to them. Almost in
1: like a go away kind of thing. Like you're not supposed to be here.
0: And because of that, they believe that all of these people that went into areas they weren't supposed to be in had a weird connection and respect to Uluru in a way that they were drawn back at the end of their life and put it into their wills that they wanted to be placed there. Because it is weird. Like, I'm sure there are a lot of people spread their ashes at, like, the Grand Canyon and all these other places, but there are easier places to get to than Uluru. Oh,
1: yeah, way easier. Uluru is difficult to get to even if you're an Australian.
0: Yeah, and I would argue maybe more majestic places to go. Yeah. And so it's weird to me. Like, I'll agree with them. It is weird that people go out of their way to come all the way out here and place ashes. Um, And I find that theory to be, like I said, I don't necessarily ascribe to it, but I find it very interesting.
1: It's a very interesting theory. And this is a really good way to transition into talking a bit more about that men's business versus women's business, because I think it's it's a concept that a lot of people might take issue with in modern day society. Um, because it it is very like gender stratified and you know with more and more time um, we're seeing less and less of that gender stratification a lot of things are like frowned upon if they're if they seem to be gender stratified like you know there's been a lot of advances for women and things like that so we've come a long way from from the point where certain genders were viewed certain ways and this culture historically and even in modern day times, still has a certain gender stratification. But it would be a mistake to look at it the same way that the Western world has viewed gender stratification. So I think it's a really interesting topic to talk about. Um, And this actually ties a little bit back into um, Kata Judah, because we said before that we had gone to Kata Judah, but we hadn't taken pictures. And the reason why is because we were respecting their rule that Kata Judah is a sacred site. It is considered men's business. And so because of that, they ask for no pictures so that it's not taken out of context. But it's like men's business to the point where there have been Aboriginal women that have been like okayed to go onto the site to do something. And they're very uncomfortable. They're Mm -hmm. like, no, I don't like being here. This is men's business. I'm not supposed to be here.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's really interesting to me. Um, So... The way that we kind of learned about men's business and women's business was, first of all, they're seen as really equal in terms of importance. Um, that that That's a big difference that is, is different from, you know, the Western world and their culture. Uh, historically in the Western world, we're, we're both familiar with the fact that, you know, women's roles have typically been looked down on uh, for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. But in this culture, women had very important roles to play. Like, they they were the primary gatherers in the hunter-gatherer kind of um, diaspora. And they were experts at being able to find water, at being able to find the honey ants, at being able to gather the fruit, at being able to cook the bread, at being able to know how to separate the seeds in the grass to be able to make that bread that you mentioned, the damper bread. Um, so they they were domestic experts, and they that was really important to preserve that knowledge and on the On the other hand, the men had specific knowledge on hunting, especially like where to go and when certain things were um, at their peak, you know whenever they had to travel to the coast to get the fish that were reaching their peak or where to find the kangaroos or how to do, you know, hunting the very last thing in the train and a bunch of other stuff that we obviously didn't learn about. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people could see that and, you know, say, well, I don't understand why that has to be kept so separate. But in order to survive in that kind of harsh desert environment, learning your roles was incredibly important. Yeah. Because if your family did not have the knowledge that they needed, if there was some break in the knowledge that was passed down from father to son or mother to daughter, if they were missing a nugget of that information, that could mean death for their Mm -hmm. family very easily. So people took it very seriously. And like I said in the previous episode, that knowledge was also kind of treated like inheritance. Yeah. That was their, their thing of value that they passed down. So that's one of the reasons why it was so gender stratified is that it was like hey like this is the knowledge i have i'm supposed to pass it down to you if you spend any of your time trying to learn the knowledge that somebody else has you might kill somebody down down the road
0: and see i think that is almost the focus that i think is missed is it's almost viewed as this is dangerous if you choose to spend your energy and time on learning something extra it yeah. was almost like there is the necessary things to learn, and then there are the extra things to learn. But we have made that a different person's business because if you spend too much of your energy on that, you're not gonna you're not gonna be an expert in the stuff you need to be an mm-hmm. expert on. Therefore, you put your family in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. One of the specific stories I think about that was like between men and women's business was that like. Women, when it came to like childbirth and child rearing and all that, it was almost considered exclusively women's business. But for the husband, he was taught the very basics of how to deliver a child in mm-hmm. case a woman was not around to help deliver yep. the child. That way if they were traveling and he found out that his wife was in labor, he still had enough knowledge to deliver the child through the first steps. And then everything else after that was out of his hands.
1: Yes, exactly. So it was about survival. Yeah, it was it about was, It wasn't like ignorance to the point of stupidity. Yeah. It was, we just learned bare, bare minimum so that we can focus on what we actually need to learn, And we know enough that, like, if the worst was to happen, we know how to navigate that. Which I can I can respect that. And granted, there is a lot still of like mysticality and spiritualism associated with the delineation of men's business and women's business. Because again, like, you know, getting to the point where you're uncomfortable even seeing a site that is supposed to be men's business is a feeling that I don't fully understand. Mm Um, and that could just be a respect thing, it, it, but it could it could tie really closely into their their um, mythos, their spirituality, things like that. Um, but a, a lot of it, from the viewpoint of survival, can be very easily understood. Yeah.
0: And there's certain things that aren't even fully agreed upon, even among different Aboriginal cultures, that could be hints of like sexism in, in a negative way and things like that, such as. Um, one thing that we've come across is with, like, the didgeridoo Mm -hmm. is there are, like, the place, at least with the research we've done, the place that it was initially, like, created and started, those Aboriginal cultures oftentimes don't care if you're a woman or a man when you play it. There are a lot of Aboriginal cultures and like Australians that stick by the thought that it's only a man's instrument and that like the instrument's haunted if a woman were to yeah. play it. So there's, there's disagreement there mm-hmm. and almost to a point where like that doesn't seem so positive. Yeah, um,
1: I mean, we've talked to yeah. uh, Aboriginal people who think that the didgeridoo thing is completely ridiculous and that it should be open yeah. to absolutely everybody of all ages. Uh, and that we've we've talked to some Aboriginal people that you know don't necessarily have that that viewpoint. Yeah. And so it, it's it's a contentious thing even within their own culture. Yeah.
0: And that, I mean that's the way anything is, right? Especially if it's something that a culture is trying to like unlearn. If it is a negative thing, there's always like a group that's learning a new habit, and a group that's learning the old habit, and yeah. like it's it's the way things progress and move forward.
1: And one of the things that actually will take us full circle and tie a nice little bow off of our stuff that we talked about in episode one is to revisit one of the things that was men's business that got closed to the general public, which is that, uh, that walk, that climb of Uluru. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that it wasn't actually just men's business that closed that climb. Uh, It kind of goes back to the whole concept of like this being the place of the Aboriginal people, of the Anangu. Because there's something special about the Anangu that I actually really respect, and that is their enthusiasm towards visitors. And you can see that today with how much they welcome people into the National Park, and how much they want people to participate in learning a little bit of their culture, nothing Again, too sacred, but something that they would teach their kids um, they're they're very welcoming people, and they actually have a creation story that revolves around it um, they 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 have a part of a rock face that was full of holes, these like big holes that 's very interesting i 'm not sure how it formed geologically, but their creation story around it this
0: is how it formed geologically
1: <laughs> <laughs> their creation story around it. Is that um I believe one of their what what they would call uh their moles,
0: yeah it was a type of mole a type of mole yeah.
1: because all of their creation stories revolve around some animals that are like naturally there, some of their 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 um native animals uh they believe that the uh the mole uh the mole there was a mole lady essentially, a big mole lady <laughs> that saw a dust cloud on the horizon because she saw people that were actually I believe the ancestors of the Anangu coming in from far out and she got so excited to have visitors that she kept tunneling in and out of the mountain almost like a in celebration and this joy because she was just so excited to have visitors and that's like a thing they teach they teach that like if if you have visitors like that's something that you should have joy about And if you have visitors, it's your responsibility to do things like show them where the best hunting spots are and show them where the water holes are because they don't know. They're from far away. Mm -hmm. So if they, you know, if they come in peace and they're visitors, then it's your duty to receive them with joy and to show them things. And that plays into the closing of the climb because that climb was actually really dangerous. There were people that died trying to
0: accomplish that climb it like we saw where the trail was and it is it's steep it's, it's one of those things steep. that like if it was wet and you actually lost your footing and weren't holding on to the rope I mean it it could go bad I mean there <laughs>
1: wasn't even a rope
0: I thought at one point at there one used point to there be was
1: there
0: well I understood yes, it as there yes. used to be a thing to hold on to but so. if you were it wasn't like you were chained in so right. if you ever lost your footing you were, you could fall. I mean, it was, it could, it was very dangerous.
1: Very, very dangerous. And the death toll is paramount, testament to that, testament to that. Um, because there were several people that had died, um, trying to attempt that climb. And the Anangu were really torn up about it because these were people that they considered visitors on their land, learning about their culture. And, that climb was dangerous enough that it killed some of the people that they felt responsible for their safety. And so part of it was just the Anangu wanting visitors to be safe because they knew how dangerous that climb could be. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that's a really important thing to keep in mind when we think about the climb because like a lot of people might view the closing as selfish, as like, oh, this is our thing, not your thing. But a lot of that was concern, Mm -hmm. born out of the desire to keep their visitors safe.
0: Yeah, and that whole idea of visitor really, like, highlights, I think, how many Aboriginal cultures there are, but there definitely was previously. So we were told that there were over 200-plus languages in the Mm -hmm. Aboriginal cultures, Mm -hmm. Um, and that that was, like, one of the things that... Uh, our tour guide had said is that like if he were to because at times they would if he were to leave the desert and go to the coast he needed those people to tell him what could be eaten what they needed how where they could go Mm -hmm. what was men's and women's business like he didn't know any of those things one of the reasons especially with like how varied australian geography really is between these coasts and the mountains and the deserts That, like, you need that sort of visitor mentality to know that when you are the visitor, you are to be taken care of. Because there's so many things that you don't know in an area. Yeah. So that is... It was interesting, one, to hear how many cultures there were and to hear, like, why that was so crucial. Um, But, of course, that leads into, like... I I don't know the exact numbers, like, on how many languages there are now and things like that. But I know, like, a lot of the cultures when, uh, you know, Britain came in and colonized the area were largely lost and especially on the coast that and that was the interesting thing to me is that the coastal cultures um while the, a lot of the people are still around a lot of their culture was lost because it was mixed with the british culture when it came in and, and i don't know a lot of the history on if they were you know oppressed or anything like that but i'm sure it wasn't great britain wasn't known for being the nicest uh <laughs> they don't colonizer. have a great
1: track record <laughs> yeah
0: so they there was a lot of culture that was initially if not lost it was tainted by the way you know britain dealt with it um and then but it's interesting that the desert cultures while they still were tainted a little it was it has been much easier to reclaim a lot of that culture because Britons couldn't survive in the middle of (laughs) australia so it was one of those things that they would come in but they could only get so far before really the elements would just push them back.
1: Yeah, kind of, it's kind of like a parallel to Russia, how Russia's <laughs> yeah. pretty much never been conquered by anybody because people just don't survive. Yeah, it's uh, just too it's, hard. It's just opposite. It's, instead of polar, it's desert.
0: Yeah, it definitely is, and I thought that was just a very interesting way to look at it, and it, it also, I know we wanted to compare it a little bit to the way the Native Americans have kind of dealt with Mm -hmm. some of their stuff because there's been a there's been a loss of culture in native american culture from what i've seen in the sense that like things are seen as like growing up i grew up a lot with a lot of those western movies like my grandparents and parents would watch and it was one of those things that native americans have a very typical stereotype that is shown in those movies that is in a lot of ways not accurate but even if certain parts of it are accurate it's only accurate to a very specific group of Native Americans. And the reality is there were a lot of different yeah. groups at one point with very different cultures, mm-hmm. and now all, a lot of that has been lost simply because we essentially, early on in the history, rounded them all up, forced them into one specific location, and in some ways killed a lot of them off. Yep. And so it's like that culture was forced to be co cohe co, co- Cohesived?
1: cohesive. Yeah, yeah
0: that's going to be the word now. Uh, <laughs> cohesive in the sense that they just they were forced to be yeah. the same it, it, thing all the way through.
1: It was compressed. Yeah. And the same the same thing can be said for people's here where mm-hmm. there a lot of culture moved inland. A lot of surviving culture moved inland, and if it didn't move inland, it didn't survive. Yeah. So there was some th- what they said is it there's still been things that have been lost in the center, um, partially because they don't exactly know where one culture stops and another one starts in some areas. And it's very hard for the coastal people to reclaim that culture because of the fact that so much has been lost and because they were were forced to do the same kind of compression that Native Americans were.
0: Yeah, and it's actually one of the things we've heard some uh Australians have issues towards the aboriginal culture is the fact that um and like I said I think it has less to do with like the sections of the aboriginal culture that have stayed very connected to their history and their culture but there are groups of aboriginal culture that has very much adopted like more modern western ideas and like the way that you know like just go to the grocery store and you just pick things up and you know you live in everyday houses and everyday things and you're really not out foraging and gathering and the men's wit- business and the women's business doesn't really seem to apply to you because you're not living like that anymore and there's been a lot of complaints um, coming from the like uh, Australian population that's not native to here that it, they are annoyed in the sense that it seems as if some of the aboriginal culture is asking to have their land and be treated as if they're still living with those traditions while simultaneously wanting to take part in all of the things that the Australian government and Australian as a country has provided yeah. and that has caused some conflict yes. um, and it uh, to be honest I it makes a lot of sense from I see why those Aboriginal groups would want to try to retain that idea of cultural, uh, pride and idea of like the land is theirs, while also wanting some of the comforts that like modern society provides so it's it 's difficult like i I get it like it 's difficult
1: i get it I, I get it as well but it's it 's one of those things where like colonization was forced upon these people <laughs> yeah. and they just happen to be not as aggressive as like that one group in the amazon that 's still untouched because they kill anybody that's near <laughs> yeah. them um and that that level of colonization permeates you and turns you into something else. Yeah. It 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 creates a an amalgamation of things. And reclaiming your culture does not mean rejecting your history. It, and and that becomes a part of your history. That colonization becomes a part of the story of your people and it's it's something where like they're reclaiming their roots while also acknowledging that the changes that were forced upon them can have some positive impacts Mm -hmm. on them as people. And I think that respecting that, like respecting that they want to reclaim what they used to be and like find a marriage between that and the modern day practices that like started with being forced to yeah. do that to, to abandon their culture and pick up somebody else's I can respect trying to find the marriage between those
0: two yeah and I and I respect the difficult issue too of like I think one thing I've heard mentioned a lot is like Australia was kind of a island of like prisoners like a lot of people that were like prisoners in you know Britain and stuff I'm pretty sure were sent here and like it's, it's an island where like the, the people that live here now, their ancestors didn't necessarily ask to be here either. In a lot of ways, it wasn't like, they were kind of a byproduct of the way colonialism was happening too. So it's this weird thing of like, a lot of the Australians that live here now are like, you know, we didn't ask to be born here either. So it, the difficult part is when those Australians feel attacked by what some of the Aboriginal people are asking for, and the Aboriginal people feel like they're not getting what's rightfully theirs by the Australian people that li- like live here. It's like that balance yeah. is a hard one that yeah. I, I mean, of course, I don't have an answer for it. I, it's, it's, it's very hard. complex.
1: Yeah. Um, it is. It is a difficult situation for everybody in modern times because mm. of the fact that we are saddled with the problems of our ancestors. And... We don't necessarily agree with what our ancestors did. But I think it's important to acknowledge that we have a responsibility to try to make things right.
0: Yeah. How do you try to make the culture better even if your ancestors screwed it up?
1: Yeah. Or even if the people who weren't even your ancestors but happened to occupy the land right before you did. Even if they were the ones that made the mistakes, how can you be an ally to the people that were there originally?
0: Yeah. Because the unfortunate part is if, if a generation or a person doesn't decide to try to do better than the previous generation before them, even if they're not actively hurting other people, a lot of the times the damage that's been done previously continues to do damage in later generations. Yeah. It's just the way it ends up happening. So it's just important. Like, I mean, those same conversations are being happen- are happening in America too. And it's like, how do you find that balance of what is... You're asking so much of people that didn't make the mistakes versus those people should be... Wanting to try and fix mistakes that right. were previously done by yeah. people in their lineage or even if not in their lineage yeah. like How do you how do you make it better?
1: It's, it's one of those things of like do we want to make the world a better place? Yeah, and if we want to make the world a better place Are we willing to take on the problems that were created by other people? Yeah. Regardless of whether or not they were our forefathers. Yeah, is it our responsibility as people who want to make a better world is it our responsibility to try to tackle the mistakes that other people have made yeah and i don't know about you but personally i believe yes yeah like uh, you know i i'm not a corporation that pumps out a lot of you know co2 into the air that makes it you know difficult for populations to breathe but i'm over here you know thinking that's a mistake and i want to be able to fix that yeah. so there are ways that I can you know lobby or protest or even just make small changes in my own life that like can try to fix that mistake even if I wasn't the person responsible for them
0: yeah, it's like you don't have to be the guilty party to want to fix something, yeah you know and, I and think just
1: just because somebody asks you to help fix something does not make you the guilty party,
0: yeah, and I think that is one thing is people that I have seen and this isn't an Australia thing this isn't even just an American thing, this is just like. In general, a lot of times when people are trying to make things better, I think the crowd that has more just sitting back and watching feels attacked Mm -hmm. for some reason. It's like, it doesn't have to be an attack. It's just like, let's figure out ways to make things better. Um, Yep. And then I think that leads into the very last topic we wanted to discuss um, that I just found very interesting because I think it's taken me a moment to get my finger on exactly what people are talking about because it just seems weird. Um, one thing specifically that we've run across time and time again that people have talked about in Australia is like a great example at least is Alice Springs Alice Springs is this place that is just in a very recent history has become crime-ridden you don't go there if you go there your car is gonna get broken into things are gonna get taken and most of the time I consider that stuff like mostly exaggerated and overblown but it has been a message that has been told to us time and time and time again, people with real life experience that have gone there and been like, it's not safe, you don't wanna be there. Um, And a lot of that is most of the time blamed on the Aboriginal population that's there. Um, And of course, there's even more complexity that we could go into, but one of the things that I realized is a point of conflict that I find, and this is not as like, a I have an answer to this, or I'm on a certain side. It is just observing the Mm -hmm. way Australia is doing it.
1: And we might not even have the facts perfectly straight. This is just kind of connecting dots based on observation.
0: Yes, and I'm sure that like even different states within Australia probably do this differently, but there appears to be an effort by the country of Australia, the government, to acknowledge that a lot of these Aboriginal cultures existed well before Australia was a country and that they had tribal laws that were in place that they handled things in a certain way. So because Australian government has recognized this and in some ways given land back and acknowledged these laws, the tribal groups are allowed, at least in certain areas I believe, to govern their own Aboriginal people under those laws
1: so basically they have their own justice system yes. and exist outside of the justice system of australia
0: and like is it gets this crazy in the sense that like when i say crazy i mean like as westerners and like the way a lot of law systems work this stuff doesn't happen anymore but there's a literal rule in some aboriginal cultures where if a person does something that breaks a law their neighbor can come over with a spear and spear them in the leg and then after doing that the person that speared the person has to sit there and nurse that other person back to health it is simply a hey you broke this rule i'm slapping you on the hand by spearing you in the leg and i will now take care of you and i will make sure you don't die and i but it Which is it
1: seems very extreme but yeah. again like these tribal justice systems existed for a reason like there's yeah. a reason why it had to go that extreme and i'm, I'm assuming that means that there were also times when people consider, do I really want to like, hold this person accountable for this thing? Is it worth me spending my time yeah. to sit and nurse this person back to health? Because that nursing back to health part was incredibly Proofy. important to the point where they have a creation story myth where somebody was punished much, much harsher and yeah. lost their life because they did not follow that rule
0: yeah like the the taking care of the person afterwards is arguably more important than the initial consequence that the first law brought and so like all of that's in place i haven't fact checked to see if it's happened but i i've heard that like literal news things have come out where like somebody got speared in the leg and like the australians that live there don't understand how that's okay but in reality it's like a tribal thing that's going on now with that said Normal like Australians that either moved here or have lived here that aren't Aboriginal have the Australian government law that they're under. Now where things end up getting very complicated is when an Aboriginal um, like citizen breaks a law that would be under the Australian government. and because the Australian government has given the Aboriginal tribe the ability to uh, punish their own people, if that is left up to the Aboriginal tribe, But the tribal leaders, which in some cases seems to be the case, are failing to really hold, especially the younger generation, accountable to the actions they're doing. What happens is you have an Australian government that cannot hold accountable this young Aboriginal population. And the tribal group that's supposed to be holding them accountable is also not doing their job. Mm -hmm. So you end up with cities, which I think are like Alice Springs. Yeah. And it's not, it is not countrywide that way. Some of the Aboriginal groups are doing a great job, I think, control, like not controlling, but like, you know, training their people in the ways that they were supposed to grow and Bring, maintaining those laws. in a
1: respectful way. Yeah.
0: So like, it's careful not to like group everybody up, but I think that is one of the reasons you're seeing a lot of racial tensions right now is because one, the Australian government is not doing a good job of protecting their people from people that are not being punished correctly and I think that has caused a lot of tension
1: yeah and and again it's one of those things where we don't have the the insight to know exactly what the Aboriginal people are doing this is again conjecture but that's actually part of what might be causing the tension is the fact that nobody can see into what the Aboriginal people are doing to curb that kind of behavior yeah because that's Aboriginal. That, that's their law. That, yeah. is not, that is not public. That is not something that everybody else gets to see. Yeah. So whatever is happening behind closed doors may not be working in some areas.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But people can't even see what's happening behind closed doors. So their assumption is that nothing's being done. And I think another thing that's important to acknowledge is we've heard, heard, hearsay, that a lot of elders... In some of the Aboriginal groups in some areas have passed away yeah. within the past like five ten years, and apparently there has been like a gap in in passing down that knowledge and that um, some of the like culture associated with that and the expectations um, and some of that has to do with things that were introduced during colonization, like alcohol and yeah. drugs. <laughs> and we we know how devastating those things can be specifically to populations that are in a, you know, a minority that is usually underprivileged or or has a history of having had a, a really hard time yeah um, so because of that i think there's been some disconnect between elders and the generations under them
0: yeah and i think we just share those observations simply to make the point that like crap is complicated yeah and like that obviously the same way that america's dealing with tons of different like representations and like how to take care of people with the history that we've gone through like australia is going to have to figure out like how do we create a system where the law is either separate but takes everything into account or together and takes everything into account because there are a
1: secret third option yeah
0: exactly (laughs) because there are some There are some areas right now that what Australia is doing doesn't seem to be working, and I think that's why there's a lot of. I mean, the reality is, in some times we've run across some pretty like casual racism that is present in Australia, and I think that's why. And it's not hard; like you can look it up. I mean, a lot of travelers that come here come out with that that knowledge, and it's one of those things that like I think that's why a lot of that exists. And I and I I hope that is definitely a reason. Yes. I hope that Australia can move in the right direction, continue to. I think they are, in some ways, moving in the right direction. I just hope that they can continue to do that because it's it's complicated. It's hard.
1: Just like I hope that America can move in the right direction, I hope that Australia can move in the right direction. And I know that I have not qualified enough to make any kind of recommendations, but it is, like you were saying, acknowledging that it's complicated.
0: Yeah. The uh, one thing that's encouraging, in my opinion, that i do think america's kind of failed at is australia seems very comfortable the government specifically not just anybody but like the government specifically seems very comfortable with admitting that there's been some mistakes made Mm -hmm. and that things need to be worked on and i don't know it just there's a lot of respect that i have for that of like looking at a system looking at history and being like okay some mistakes have been made how can we make this better um so anyway All that just to say, things are complicated. Things are
1: complicated, and there have been some stuff that we see in Australia that's really cool that they've done with it, and there's some stuff in Australia that we've seen that is apparently (laughs) still very tense. Yeah. And we'll see where that leads them, I guess. Mm -hmm.
0: But that, I think, kind of wraps up our Uluru experience.
1: Yes, and Um, I will probably think of about five dozen things that we didn't talk about that I will wish that I had talked about Probably immediately after we stopped recording.
0: Yeah, we should have recorded way earlier because it was one of those things. I feel like we had so many stories we wanted to talk about. There was probably enough here for three or four episodes at one point. Um, But I do think, I feel like we got a lot across. And this will be, these two episodes will be two episodes, I think, when we're looking back on our podcasting days, we'll actually really enjoy. Yeah. Um, Because it just, there was a lot there that we learned and could learn and, continue yeah. to learn <laughs> yeah so I, I enjoyed that a lot but uh don't worry funky music and i am about to go and get over my fear of this beautiful beach <laughs> and try and at least snorkel the outer rim of this i don't know if it's the Great barrier reef that we're looking at right now
1: we yeah we're a little south we might be just Past
0: I do know, I do know that we're in it. We're okay. in the area. Um, I know because like Ariel, I think they even called themselves the heart of the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, Airly, a- sorry, yeah. not Ariel. Um, but <laughs>
1: the movie about that's coming up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's already. Uh, um, but yeah. So I am. I don't know if th- I know there's a lot of reefs here, so I don't know if this is technically the Great Barrier, but we're about to it check out reef,
1: and it's near the Great Barrier Reef yeah. if not part of it exactly. so that's very exciting anyways uh, thanks guys for listening to our ramblings and for uh, just supporting the podcast in general it's fun to see people join and listen and see the numbers tick up it's kind of a, a little bit of a competition, a personal competition for us at this point. <laughs> um, just to see the numbers and be like, yes, one more person. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we so get like a really subscriber
0: fun. once a month, a <laughs> new one, are like,
1: yeah! Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, we've probably left you with the funky music for too long. Is there such thing as too much funky music?
0: Uh, I think that one episode, yeah. Yeah, a little too much funky yeah, music. But So um, we'll,
1: we'll wrap it up and uh, say, talk to you later? We,
0: we've got to come up with that. <laughs> I know it's a failure of ours. Bye! <laughs> Bye! <laughs>